0: Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 80 of Conquering Columbus. Uh, today on the show, we've got a great episode lined up for you. We had Tim and Brian Kite of Focus 3. And for those of you who've never heard of Focus 3, I'm sure you've probably heard of their, their famous slogan, E plus R equals O, which means event plus response equals outcome. And you'll recognize it because the Ohio State Buckeye football team used that slogan and their culture training to help them win a national title in 2014-2015. And Brian and Tim have helped a lot of organizations around the world improve their culture and leadership skills on a team level and an individual level. And I definitely think you guys will get a lot out of this episode. hope you enjoy it. And most of all, the takeaway we want is that after this, go out and do something to make yourself better. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you're listening to this on. And uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, There will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it will make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital. Through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state.
1: For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy to use and tailored fit facilities maintenance management software We serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conquerors, that's all we got. Let's get this show
0: on the road. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done
2: to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.
0: Hey there Conquerors, welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. And today on the show we're really excited to have uh, Tim and Brian Kite of Focus 3. And Tim is the founder of Focus 3 and he's been consulting with organizations on leadership and culture for over 35 years. And Brian is the CEO of the company, and both Tim and Brian also run their own podcast, which will be linked down in the show notes if you guys want to go check that out. Uh, but some of their more well-known clients include Ohio State, and their E plus R equals O strategy was on full display when the Buckeyes won the first CFB playoff in 2015, as well as the Washington Huskies, and we are really excited to have them here on Conquering Columbus. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks, As. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. You guys are both ha- in Columbus. Uh, Rarely I think is that correct? It's hard to you, you guys to meet up here in the same place at the same time
2: We are not often in the same place at the same time. So this is definitely a, uh, a unique Intersection tonight
3: and I don't even live here. So that means I'm in Columbus even less frequently Although I moved to Charlotte four years ago and for the first two years after I moved to Charlotte I'm pretty convinced if you looked at my schedule I spent more days in Columbus once I moved away than I did when I actually lived in this city so it's always nice to be back, but uh,
1: I enjoy the Charlotte winters more so than the Columbus. <laughs> so you can tell by the tan. You definitely haven't been hanging out here not very recently. Not moments. much. Not. <laughs> it's freezing out there. So kind of the place I would like to kick it off is maybe start at the beginning and just hear a little bit about the backgrounds. And obviously with two people, um, maybe we just split it between and talk about you know childhood, upbringing. You said that you were raised in San Diego, so I'm assuming that's where you spent the earlier part of your life.
2: Well, I was born and raised here in Columbus. And I went to high school locally and went to Ohio State one year. Ran track and field, then transferred to UCLA, which is what got me out to California, and ended up starting the business in the San Diego area, and that's obviously where Brian was raised. And we we lived there until he moved back here to go to College of Worcester, so that was roughly 2001. So most of my life, Southern California, and then the rest of my life here.
1: What sparked that transfer to UCLA?
2: It was track-related at the time, late 60s, early 70s. Ohio State was not a track and field school, and UCLA was the center of the universe, so that
3: that's for track and field. So that's why I went there. He was, he's, he's underselling himself. He was a Columbus legend uh, in high school. Uh, I tease him, although I think he teases himself. There was a time where he was probably the fastest white dude in America, national <laughs> champion, 300 intermediate hurdles, uh, his senior year track at Thomas Worthington, and full scholarship to Ohio State, and full scholarship to UCLA, you know, the the... The age and modesty might fool you now, but he was he was fast back in the day.
0: Definitely the old days. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about growing up in San Diego then. And where you follow? did you go do the track thing yourself, or what did you do growing no, up? No, I was football. Football, I was football. Yeah, I um, football was was my sport. I mean, I, I grew up. I kind
3: of grew up that uh, ideal. What you would predict a Southern California life would be I surfed every day you know when I was there and grew up between San Diego and Los Angeles and and travel all around but it was either it was surfing skateboarding motorcycles quads and football football was really the the core of that started playing when I was eight and then uh, went all the way through and then what got me from San Diego to Ohio first was I wanted to play football in a place where it mattered in San Diego or LA frankly anywhere in Southern California they have a lot of uh, big time college football programs, but the college football in California, it's on the weekend, it's not particularly high up on the list of things to do. And the extracurriculars are so intense in California that uh, I wanted to be in a place where football mattered. And so that meant Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, something like that. And Ohio was a, was a really logical place. Looked at a, a few different places, but ended up settling on College of Worcester for combination of academics and what was the best playing situation for me
2: interesting roots to this though I coached his pop Warner football team for a long time and the fundamental principles that we teach now I had implemented on our youth football team so he got exposed to these principles as at home but also on the football field and was even as a youngster was instrumental in leading and contributing to not just X's and O's and the football side, but he he understood and lived the culture, even as a young person in Pop Warner football, all the way up through eighth grade.
1: And those fundamentals at the time—did you realize what you were putting into place, or was it just kind of like the way that you thought and it evolved into fundamentals?
2: No, it was it was it was definitely intentional and purposeful. So I'm running this consulting company, which is basically me, and then you know I come home from work and coach football. So I always believed in the physics of leadership, culture, behavior of at the time, it's called R-Factor today, but it's called personal best at the time. Life skills, driving, job skills, life skills, driving, athletic skills, teaming, trust, culture building. I, you know, that's what I was doing for a living. You know, He's 11 years old and is on my football team, but I, I go from doing it in a company for a client of mine to the practice field and teach it to 10, 11-year-olds. And it was the same fundamental, As I still do it today, exact same thing. So I've, I've been doing this for, like you say, 35 years. But he got exposed to it not just at home, but he got exposed to it as a, as a young athlete, which I think has made a big difference in his absorption of all this, and then
1: then his ability to articulate and teach it now as our CEO. And yeah. one thing one thing I kind of want to talk about on that topic is when you break it down and you go back to when you first started to develop those fundamentals on your own, do you remember kind of what it was that was going on around you at the time that kind of helped you realize the things that you guys are practicing today? And Maybe talk a little bit more about that. So it might be a tough question to answer.
2: No, I, the, the, the genesis of, of the content that I created was, first of all, my own athletic experience. So here I am, a, a competitive athlete in high school at the national level and then a competitive athlete in college at the national level. And then huge for me was my exposure to John Wooden at UCLA because our locker room for track was in the same building as the basketball team. And so my three years at UCLA were his, were John Wooden's final three years, and he won his ninth and tenth national championships while I was there, and he had been given, you know, the nickname the Wizard of Westwood because of that, and so I'm observing him and I'm watching him do this, and it was just, it was it was the catalyst. And then I coached high school football and track the year after I graduated from UCLA, and then I was a graduate assistant in grad school at Princeton. So I was, I was starting to, I was coaching, I was doing this, I was applying these things. And so the, the, the development of the content was, had begun even then.
0: Yeah, and so I guess my question is for Brian. And myself, I'm also from San Diego. My dad also coached my Pop Warner team. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something, when I was a, a 13-year-old kid playing Pop Warner, the last thing I wanted to do was listen to my dad tell me how to play football or tell me how I need to uh, react. So did that ever was that ever something that like uh, that was a challenge for you growing up, or was it pretty easy for you to go go along with all these things your dad was telling you? Well, I had an interesting childhood
3: because the the uh, you know our dinner table conversation revolved around one of two topics, uh, and that was well one of three topics. It was uh, what did dad do at work, which was explaining what was going on with clients, and he would always come home and and. You know, talk business, not above our head as a family, but in a more interesting way. Two, we would talk football, and then number three, we would tell jokes. Um, don't ask for any of them because not a whole lot of them are funny. But they're one of those family jokes that are, you know, funny on the inside. All of my jokes, were, are, and will La- be. Ladies funny. and gentlemen, most of them are puns. I will let you determine whether they're funny or not. We'll have but, them in the show notes. So we'll yeah. get them there. <laughs> but. What was interesting was, you know, probably like most kids, I, I always, I wasn't always interested in the fatherly advice, uh, on on the father side. You know, all, all this, some of it you are, some of it you're not. Well, what was more interesting was, anytime it came to football, you know, school, separate topic, homework, separate topic, friends, separate topic. Anytime it came to football, though, um, we were always on the same page, mm-hmm. always, and we would. And again, from w- eight years old, we would break down film yeah, together. Yeah. We would. Talk about what happened together. We would discuss how we were trying to lead the team, um, and it wasn't helped. just
2: X's and O's. There were there were schemes yeah, yeah. And, and and techniques and strategies, but it was also teaming culture, and and then it transferred over into the field. Where I don't, it's odd. I don't ever recall you ever pushing back against me coaching you or anybody on our football team. Me neither.
3: No, not not on the not on not on that stuff. It was always you know it was always you know homework or you know why'd you yeah. get a why'd you get a, a minus, a-? you know, you should have got an A plus. And then he would, you know, smack me <laughs> around. And, no, it was, no, but, but on the football field or football topic on those things. And, you know, now as a dad myself, you know, you look back and, you know, he used it as a vehicle, you know, not just to make me productive as a, as a football player, but obviously productive as, you know, a young man and growing and building those things in. But, um, you know, I think that was a, a testament to how he ran our family and how he parented uh, was that, you know, we surrounded with this stuff and it was it was the vehicle that he could teach through. And then for me, uh, you know, I know this is this is a podcast. I'm, a, I'm now a full grown adult, you know, five foot eight, you know, 160 pounds, you know, imagine me as an eight year old, nine year old, 10 year old, I was never the biggest guy. In fact, I was always the smallest guy by a large margin. So everything we talked about and everything we were, he was teaching me and I was absorbing and learning frankly it was mandatory for me to have any success on a football field especially and um, yeah, i can remember even there was a time where <laughs> there was a time where we discussed hey maybe maybe wrestling is a better sport for you cuz you can you can <laughs> position yourself better given your uh, diminutive stature and they uh, have weight classes or, or and weight the weight classes, person you compete against is the same you way you fit are. within them and you know when you get to High school these weight classes aren't gonna aren't gonna uh, uh, in football. There's no weight class You know, you're gonna go out there and and get mushed around. So It frankly it was mandatory for me. So I learned at a really young age that I could get an edge on other people who seemingly had a lot of other edges that I didn't have and The edge that I could gain was always 100% in my control. Whereas the six foot four guy you know, he was limited on how fast he could get or big he could get or taller or shorter he could be where I was never limited on how much toughness I could have, how hard I could work, how, how much I could hustle. And I can remember, I can remember a, uh, I can remember a, a, a moment where, um, <clears throat> I, I came back from a football camp when I was, I don't remember how old I was. I was 10 years old. It was some big old camp. I remember Ronnie Lott spoke there and some, uh, some other kid, there's a big camp, like a thousand kids, something like that. Some other kid won the hustle award at, you know, I was 10 years old, you know, some other kid won the hustle award among all the campers. And I can remember, uh, I can remember my family was so disappointed in me for not winning the hustle award because it was the one award you could win where you didn't have to be the best player. And I remember, I, I can remember back, I was telling the story to somebody the other day. I can remember... How it felt to to not get that, and then to actually understand a ten. Oh, that's in my control. And I went back, and I think I did that camp another three years, and I won it the next three years. The hustle award because it was I was never ever ever gonna miss that one again. And once I once that clicked for me, uh, you know, it never left.
2: And that's a theme that I've built into our company from day one, and that is whether you're a hospital or a bank or a manufacturing company or a football team or a basketball team or wrestling or swimming, you control how much focus and effort you put into something. And that the competitive differentiation isn't always talent or size or uh, other assets that a company may have, but that the way you lead, the way, the kind of culture you build, the kind of personal discipline you bring to your job, those are the
1: differentiators. And so that's been a theme from, you know, for 35 years. So even if people get down that concept that they have control over every moment and every action that happens to them in their life, I think at a more fundamental level when you jump down to like motivation, you talk about at like a granular if they know that they have to do the hard thing and they know they have control of it, sometimes they still don't. And how do you determine like what drives people and, and how to make that right choice then and to understand that you have control?
2: Well, those are, they're, they're, there's some separate things in there. Let me just unpack a couple of them. You, you mentioned motivation, and then you also mentioned decisions. And those are related, but they're not the same. So motivation is this internal drive, this internal energy that somebody brings to what they do. And there are a lot of different theories and ideas about what motivates people. And, in fact, there are multiple motivators. There isn't a singular motivator. People talk about the why. There isn't one why. Now, there are things that people have where... You know, like, I'm a man of faith. My relationship with God is a big why for me. There are other why. My family is a why for me, uh, friendships, community is a why for me. I have a deep desire. And I'm driven to help other people get better. My, my notion of service to other people. I mean, I, I, and those, those motivators for me get stronger. What I recommend to people from a motivation perspective is write down those motivators, identify what those things are that drive you, and don't get caught and the gravitational pull of just one, but identify a list of what they might be. You know, for, and I've identified five, and I've, I know my five motivators. Decision-making is, a, is a, it's a process. It's a disciplined process. It's a methodology. The human mind works a certain way. Physics, we call it. There's a way the human mind makes good decisions. There's a way the human mind makes bad decisions. We call it discipline is the good decision-making process, defaults the bad one. And, and I shouldn't say bad. Discipline is the most effective way to make decisions. the one that works. is the one that works the best, produces the best results. Default will produce results, but the best default can do is average, and eventually it will fail you. So the, the, the process of disciplined thinking and problem solving, when you match that with the energy of motivation, holy smokes. That's where you get this power. And, and so I, I understand what you're saying, but I think it's important to understand motivation is this energy I have that drives me. And I can have, but if, what if I've got motivation but poor decision-making? That's an unguided missile. Not, not a good thing. If I've got great decision-making but no motivation or low motivation, I've got a, you know, I've got a missile sitting on the pad that's never going, not, going to go, not going to launch. So what I want to do is find the motivators and then, and then have a disciplined process for... Seeing uh, processing information and then making good decisions, and maybe maybe the best decision making skill is learning from your mistakes because there's no such thing as a perfect process. And so if you're discipline driven, you're very open to, hey, that didn't work. No, that that was a bad decision on my part, or a poor decision, or okay, but it needs to be enhanced. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Okay. I think I think I was working more off of the side that you broke down to the motivation is not there, but yet the discipline is and somebody trying to find their motivation, which is, you know, writing it down. And I guess yeah. it probably varies by a case-by-case basis for you guys. When you sit down with people, I'm assuming everybody's different and has a different way to kind of get to what their root motivation is.
3: And I, I tell you how, how I look at it when it comes to – because one of the things that's real is you have to understand – and I, I appreciate that question – where you, where the discipline is there, uh, but the motivation isn't. And that's a that's a real experience that we have, and I don't know that – it it doesn't, that's probably something that's felt or sensed more than almost anything else, whether that's, um, you wake up in the morning. Uh, I mean, you know, in your former athletic background, you can, you can identify where you wake up in the morning and you just don't feel like working out that day. You don't feel like getting on the mat. You don't feel like running the sprints. You don't feel like shooting a hundred free throws. And then now in the work perspective, it's, you know, you have to get the, uh, proposal done. You know, you have to go out and Hit the road and go on the road trip for four days, but you don't feel like it. One of the things is recognize that motivation is variable. I mean, I, I always make the I always make the point to people that motivation is temporary, but discipline is enduring. That if you recognize from the beginning as your life structure, that motivation will be a pretty big wavelength. It'll go through really high highs where you feel like nothing can stop you, and it'll go through really low lows where you're where you're it's seemingly endless. Uh, just just met with a client yesterday who. Uh, had a situation where um, uh, She had a kid and put on a bunch of weight. She put on a hundred pounds we We're just having this conversation publicly. So she met up put on a hundred pounds and she's in shape And then she has a kid and had some some complications Great lady put on a hundred pounds and she's like, hey, I just put on a hundred pounds Now I'm thinking about how do I get get from how do I get out of this and it feels so far away And so here's a person who's driven super engaged uh, a pretty disciplined, very aggressive in a good way, in an awesome way, and has been athletic her entire life. And now for the very first time ever, she's put on a hundred pounds, totally doesn't feel like herself. And despite all of that, she feels like it's almost an impossible task for her. And so I recognize that as, well, who isn't going to experience whatever their version of it is? Not necessarily health, but it could be work. It could be you want to write a book. It could be you want to uh, ask somebody on a date, but they feel like they're way out of your league or whatever it happens to be. So I look at discipline is an enduring thing. I look at motivation as a fleeting thing. And when you view motivation as a fleeting thing, then you can act with discipline regardless of your motivation level. And you start looking at motivation through a different lens. It's a non-necessary factor for the action required to do whatever it happens to be. I don't have to be motivated to love my wife every single day. If you've ever been in a relationship, you don't always really, I mean, even in our relationship, there's times where we're, we're, interacting better with each other. And there's times where we get frustrated with each other or irritated with each other. But when there's a standard of the discipline that we put in our relationship that keeps us centered, that's actually what secures us, it anchors us, it grounds us on a really good standard. Then that actually endures us through those moments where I don't feel like doing this, but I'm going to, or I really feel like doing it, but I don't want to get way overextended. Is that, you follow that? And then the second piece I look at on that, Motivation, I actually like looking bigger. So I actually look at it this way. I look at motivation as this way. I don't know that you need more than any motivation and that you actually only get one shot at this thing. That's all you ever get. You don't ever get a shot at being 21 a second time. So have fun, do your thing. If you're in college, you know, do your thing, study, have fun, but also recognize you're 21. If you're not in college, if you're a a dad and you're having a, a, a kid, and you know, my son's one right now. He only gets one shot at being one years old. So you have one life, you get one head and you get one heart to actually use to go about that life. You'll never get a second chance at doing this thing. So if you're struggling to find motivation with the one life that you have to live and what you wanna get out of it, there's not a whole lot that we can do in a workshop or in a session to help you other than remind you of that and get you to be aware of that and then turn on whatever it is you're trying to do with this one chance that you get.
2: So, and I I think there's an example of a little bit of variation in between Brian and me. I I put a bit more weight on the motivational side than I think he does. Uh, We both agree on the discipline side. I think, I do think personally that motivation is something you need to go find and cultivate. He kind of senses it's there and he, he probably, he accesses, let me put it this way. If what I heard, and I've heard you say this before, what you just said. I think he tends to access motivation through discipline, I tend to access discipline through motivation, but it's the same thing from my time.
0: Yeah, and that kind of leads me to the question that I wanted to ask, which is do the best leaders and the best teams, do they find teammates who are already motivated and teach them to be disciplined? Do they find teammates that are already dis- disciplined and find a way to motivate them? Kind of How do they pull those pieces together to form a cohesive unit that's both disciplined and motivated towards the same goals. I'll take a,
2: I'll take a first shot at that. In the, almost every elite business that I have studied and had an opportunity to work with that was already operating near its potential, they hire people that fit real well with their culture. People that have a motivational and discipline level that's pretty close to where the company is, and then they integrate them, align them with that company. It's a little bit different in athletics because you're, if you're in college, you're, you're, you're a college coach, you're recruiting high school kids and you don't really know what the kids' level of motivation discipline is. You try your best and you, obviously there's parents and teachers and coaches. And, uh, but in a business setting, uh, most of the elite organizations, they go find those people and then, and then align them. Now, if you are an existing company and you're not at an elite level, you've got a lot of work to do because you've got to bring skill You've got to bring something to the – you've got to lead people into higher degrees of discipline and, lower, and higher degrees of motivation. So it's a bit different if you're existing with an elite level versus trying to go from average to elite. But it's a lot of work to – create. but you've got to lead it, and it's built. And, and often – I mean, how do you get great people? Hire them or build them. That's it. Hire them or develop them. That's how you get them.
1: And then so it's something that you touched on there, and if you're going to jump in and talk more, basically, I wanted, you talked about the college aspect of it, and we watched athletes come in and be best in the world in high school and then come into Ohio State and not reach the level of potential that they should have. And I think a lot of it, from my perspective, is rooted in they had goals that were their parents and not their own. And then when they got on their own and they got their independence, they didn't find their own motivation. But they had lived a life of discipline for so long at such a high level. So I think it's interesting, and I'm, I'm curious if you have any perspective on – Maybe how people go about eventually finding you know their own their own lighthouse at the end of the tunnel is that you almost described it because yep. like the motivation goes up and down. What do you focus on and how do you find your focus?
3: So uh, it's an interesting word that you use when you say they lived the life of, of discipline when they were living out you know their parents or somebody else's coaches somebody else's expectation. So I would actually I would actually uh, reset that word and it's one of the things. So we're on a mission to take back the word discipline. The word discipline has become misinterpreted and misattributed to other words and there's three big words that discipline tends to get associated with and confused with uh because frankly that's how it gets used the three big words that discipline gets misattributed to is punishment obedience and compliance people tend to think when you say "live a life of discipline or when you say you need discipline or be disciplined they tend to think of that as one getting punished in some way right and that's what parents and even companies say they go through disciplinary action. Second is being disciplined is being obedient with what somebody else tells you to do. The third being disciplined is about being compliant with whatever, uh, rule or regulation got set. So what I would say, Josh is when somebody lives a life of discipline because somebody else expected it of them, I would say that's actually not a life of discipline at all. I would say that's a life of obedience. Discipline is when you make the choice for yourself. And there's a difference between, if you draw a line, there's a difference between absorbing a belief and choosing it. There's a huge difference between absorbing a belief and choosing it. You can live in complete alignment with a belief system that you absorbed from somewhere or someone else, and it'll look on the outside like discipline, you know, and for a wrestler or a football player, a high school athlete, a college athlete, you see it all the time. You see people who show up and do everything required, but but I'm convinced, Why do those people not achieve what they want? It's because they're acting out of obedience and compliance, then they're not actually acting out of discipline. And so what happens is they do what's required, but a lot of it is posturing. And if if you have athleticism or frankly, from a work perspective, I mean, you see people do this all the time. You see lawyers become lawyers because their mom and dad expected them to become lawyers and they show up and they will literally mail it in for 20 years as a really smart person. They'll make solid money and they'll be miserable. And then they'll start a family because they think that's what's expected. And they don't realize, oh, I didn't actually wanna live in this town with this job and get married to this person, but they don't realize that for another 10 years. And they're not even aware of it. And, they're, and that's the hard part about that is they absorb these belief systems. So I tell people that you have to look at every belief that you have in your life. In my, in my personal opinion, this is what <clears throat> one life means. You have beliefs in your life and there's a line on every single belief. Every belief comes from one of two sources. You absorbed it from the environment around you, including the people, or you choose it for yourself. I tell people don't absorb beliefs. It's okay for me to hear a belief from my dad, bring it in now as a grown adult, process that belief and then choose it for myself because I got exposed to wisdom from my dad. It's also 100% acceptable and you need to as a grown adult, take belief systems that come from other people who aren't you and then recognize that's a belief system you have or or approach you want to bring. But I don't want to absorb that because that's just not how I'm going to do that particular thing. Now, the wider that is and the more central it is for somebody else that can be a painful process. But a lot of athletes need to decide whether or not they're showing up because they're making their own choice because it's something inside their heart, which is probably getting back to the motivation or whether or not they're absorbing it from somebody else. And a lot of times, I mean, you can talk to this from your experience. <clears throat> you know, you tell me, do you think it would have been a painful experience for some of those guys that you competed with to go back to their family and say, I don't want to wrestle anymore. I did this for you and not for me. And frankly, I had fun, but now this isn't even enjoyable for me and I'm done. I'm giving up my scholarship. Like that'd be, a, that'd be hard, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what's harder, going through all that wrestling stuff or having to deal with that emotional strain it puts on you and your family? A lot of guys will make the decision. The emotional strain is harder than the punishment they put you through in a wrestling season, and I bet you a lot of guys make that choice.
2: Here's another interesting um, detail about it, because the word discipline actually is the Latin word for learning. It doesn't mean punishment. It means the process of each individual making the decision to apply things to their own life where they learn and get better. That's all the that word means. It is student my Latin teacher would say "Greeting students every day to And so. What, and, at a,
3: and at a higher level, it's, it's, it's learning by training. Correct. At, at, the, at the higher, the, 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 like that full definition is, in the true sense in the old Latin word, it's learning by the act of training oneself. Correct,
2: so and no, notice we, by training oneself. So it means that discipline is not something that someone does to you, it's something you choose to do for yourself discipline isn't imposed on you from the outside it's chosen by you on the inside or it's not and if it's not chosen by you on the inside you get something called default and default is simply the absence of discipline the absence of the process of learning the absence of the process of self-development and you allow yourself to go with the tides to go with the winds and you do this absorption thing Whereas the disciplined person says, hmm, I'm gonna choose what beliefs to follow. I'm gonna choose what skills to build into my life. I'm gonna choose what person I wanna become. Oh, it's gonna be really hard to become that person. Oh, I'm not gonna make that choice then. Oh, or this is really hard, but I do wanna make that choice. That's what the word discipline means. So when we talk about discipline over default, that's one of our missions, that's one of our motivators, is we want to help people live a discipline-driven life, meaning they choose for themselves where they want to go, how they want to get there, who they want to become along the way, and what skills are necessary to make that happen. Does that that make sense, guys?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think.
3: And watch how crazy this is. When you're choosing for yourself, and you're training yourself on how to make those choices, versus when you are letting something or someone else choose for you, even if it is a compliant and an obedient approach, but it's more driven out of a, uh, a desire to stay, uh, a desire to stay compliant with what somebody else expects of you or whatever it happens to be, which one of those two ways of operating is more free? When you're choosing for yourself or when you're choosing to make somebody else happy or something else happy or do what you think is expected of you, which one's more free?
1: For when job. you choose
3: for yourself, when you're in default mode, and you feel like you are are needing to stay compliant and obedient, that's the definition of being trapped. It's the definition of being rigid and locked in. So in a strange turn of events, the word discipline is a much more flexible, free approach to life where you have infinitely more options than the default approach to life, where you are literally trapped in an expectation, uh, uh, an emotion you can't get away from or overcome and you end up actually getting locked into some subpar life by your standards, not, not by mine, some subpar life than what you either wanted or could have had if you had simply put more discipline into how you went about things and you were less worried about
1: compliance and obedience. And it's funny that you brought it back to that because I listened to an interview this morning with Jocko Willink who just released a book called Discipline Equals Freedom. And his yep. philosophy is, is centered around that ideation. But yep. we've obviously, and we and talked got, about- And he's got,
3: he's 100% right. Yeah
1: hundred percent we talked about a little bit before the interview started how we would put the outline out there and then not follow it all on accident so we've kind of taken that path but i want to bring it back is a that a bit. lack of discipline on all our <laughs> but i felt very <laughs> I was free sorry, it was free we were choosing our so way to this non-chosen path got it good it. and it's better than a subpar podcast that's right so. i love it so we, we want a birdie podcast <laughs> to talk about go back to what you guys got going on with Focus 3. Maybe you know, they can hear the story at a lot of places like you talked about on how it started, but maybe just like a high level and then what do you guys feel like are the key areas where you are really delivering value to people that you're working with? So just the, the beginning, I started in San Diego, like I said, and started with a
2: few handful of clients and it just grew from, I had a couple of really big clients early, which I think helps. Consulting, starting a consulting firm is really difficult. Because you have to do three things: you have to have content,
1: you have to have delivery skill, and you have to, to uh, sell. And those are three disparate things. It's got to be hard to determine the ROI on it in the beginning, too, right? Because I mean, when you're teaching philosophies and mental mindsets, like how do you determine or how do you prove to the people that you're working with that what you did? Not, that. That's
2: not that hard because typically clients hire you to produce a result, to, to solve a problem, or achieve a goal that they have in a business. So they say, hey, help these leaders get better, or we need to sell more or provide better service to clients, or this team isn't functioning well in this department, and would you bring some skills and tools to help them get better? And, and, and you do or you don't bring those tools, that the people listen to you and, and try to implement what you've taught them or they don't. And if they don't try to implement them, you're not going to have that engagement very long. So that's pretty easy in my mind. The challenging thing, I think, in this industry are those three skill sets I talk about. You have to have content, either you develop it or you buy it someplace else, and you gotta deliver, so you gotta be good at teaching, facilitating, speaking, and you gotta sell business. And here's the really hard thing, you have to do all three of those simultaneously. And what happens to a lot of people is they'll have one of those, usually they'll, they'll be able to deliver something, and they'll get, a, they'll get an engagement, and they'll start delivering it, and then the engagement runs out. And all of a sudden look around and where's my next paycheck coming from? Where's my next project coming from? And they they scramble and and there's enormously high percentage of failure in the consulting business. So I I just, I was fortunate that I was able to do all three of those things. And I'd like to tell you that I worked really hard. I I don't think, I I just think it was natural for me. I mean, I honed the skills, but it just wasn't difficult. It just came, I think it came naturally to, to him as well. And then, you know, he got some clients, and, and it grew. And then eventually, um, you know, I had different people come in and out. But the, the big, big thing for us in terms of the growth of the company was when he joined the company, started working with me. And the, what year? Uh, he graduated from college in 2004. Yeah. And uh, was that – did you graduate this spring 2004, the spring of 2004? Or was it the spring of – whatever, 2004, 2005. 2005 was when I joined. Yeah, and then he joined and, and, and started doing
3: – I moved out to – I don't, I don't We haven't. I do want really to talk about this publicly a whole lot. I moved out to when I graduated from Worcester at the very last second. My original plan when I graduated from Worcester was to coach coaches, to do what we do for Ohio State and Washington and Boise State and the Chicago Bears. To, to Actually, that was my dream was I wanted to coach coaches. When I played, I saw the most undercoached profession was coaches. So I was all set to do that. I was going to come, move back to Columbus, start that. The last second I had an opportunity to move back to California, to Manhattan Beach, live on the beach and you know got a job in Westwood actually right UCLA's campus. And I took it at the very last second and then uh, got a job, didn't like the job, realized really quickly that it didn't matter where you lived if you didn't if you didn't love the activity you spent every day. In fact, I'm not even a big believer in the why, I'm a huge believer in the what. You have to love what you do. The why fades. Pick your job. You know, go look at go talk to nurses who save lives every day, go talk to teachers who teach, teach kids every day, go talk to people who, you know, work at the zoo and some cool stuff. You worked there for about eight months, nine months, 10 months. And those days and weeks start adding up and people will check out at some really cool jobs because it just like any job, it gets monotonous. So you actually have to love what you do. But what's, what's funny was, uh, I called him and I said, Hey, I'm like, I made a bad decision. You know, this isn't where I want to be. I got to go back to what I want to be doing. I want to start this. And I said, I, I, I'm going to move back to Columbus, Ohio. And I was in LA and he's like, okay, well when I said, well, pretty sure I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. So, really any time after that would be fine. And, uh, and so we booked, I, mean, I think we did it like, it was like not much longer, it was like two weeks later. And, uh, and he flew out to LA from Columbus. I had a two-door silver Honda Civic four-cylinder, packed everything I owned into a two-door Civic. We got into it in LA, picked them up from the curb. I, I landed
2: LAX. Yep. walk straight out to his Honda Civic, get in his car. We drive back. And we drive, to drive the straight car. to Columbus. We stopped one time. <laughs> I think you no, lost on no, this one. Well, no, well, I slept most he, of the he time. He came back.
3: He came back in one. It was a 35-hour total drive. And he drove four of those hours. Uh, five, so five. I drove five. Five hours, collective five, hours. Five hours yeah. Yeah. We actually drove through Katrina. Well, in that, which and was I and I paid for the gas and the food too. I that's say true. About. That's true. So w- that was that was uh, that was an interesting piece. So when I got started, that was really where I did that transition. Was literally just packing my stuff into a Honda Civic and. Sh- headed back over and uh yeah and that was it and we but it was started.
2: interesting because he he then wanted to try that coaches uh, coach coaches and get involved in athletics and i said great give it a shot but because our stuff works fantastic in athletics and i can show you how and help fine-tune some stuff and the deliverables were there and then i said now my experience is coaches won't buy it ad's won't buy it uh, the need is huge but the, the the level of interest in terms of Willingness to pay for it is is real low, but go give it a shot. Maybe things have changed. He went out and gave it a shot for, I don't know, six months or so, or maybe less than that. And
3: Ofer. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) A a swing and a complete miss with every single coach I talked to, every sport, every level, everywhere. So those that had the want didn't have the means to pay. Those that had the means to pay
2: didn't have the desire and willingness to do it. So he looked, and I said, well, you got to pay the bills, so either go find a different job someplace else or – You got to to do some of the stuff I'm doing in the business world. And his first project for me was with a a credit union, who I was unable to deliver a a workshop for. And I put the fee at risk. And I said, "Hey, my son is working for me now. He's young, but he's pretty good. Uh, How do you feel about him doing the project, doing the the workshop? If he's no good, he didn't like it. You don't have to pay. If you like it, uh, go ahead and pay us."
3: They paid triple after it was over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: right. So, um, ironically, credit unions are paying triple today what what they paid at that That's time. That's the point. That's true. Good but point. but he delivered it. He liked it more than he thought he would, which was interesting. Way more than he thought he would. The clients loved it, and that was his first and, and then uh, of many. And then slowly but surely, he got good at all three phases of the of the business. And at some point, we made the decision. Hey, you've got ideas and vision, and he wanted to grow the company and do some things with it. That frankly, at my age. And kind of where I'm at, I didn't want to do. So I, there you go, take over, be CEO, grow this thing, and he's been doing a great job.
0: Yeah, and so I guess what I'm interested in, and you know, most people out there know that you guys work with Ohio State, and I'm sure that you could go find that story all over the internet. You guys can Google it, you'll find plenty of podcasts talking about how they landed. You could buy a State. book. There's a book. You could buy a book. I've seen it quite a few times. In, that one. Quite a few times in Barnes and Noble, and uh, so what I'm interested in is. Uh, Ohio State's not the only athletic directors you guys are working with now. What clicked? How did you start getting these coaches and people to sign up?
2: Well, let me, let me just say this about our market. We have three niches or three segments that we focus on. Business is our legacy, so we work with business organizations. We work with athletics, which you can talk about, and we work with education. So we teach our system of leadership, culture, behavior in business, athletics, and in public schools. And we're excited about all three of them. And they're, they're, it's interesting how, how disparate they are, how different they are. And yet, and yet, the physics of what we do is the same in all of them, is the same. So did you want to drill down on the athletic side, or was there a piece of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it fits there, but I guess um, branching off. do you
1: off. scale athletically? Is that what you're Right, about? yeah, I guess
0: my question my question is more because you mentioned that you were over for six months with coaches, athletic directors. So what changed? What did yeah, probably, you probably change closer about? To a,
3: Probably closer to a year. I mean, look, there's, there's two things. Uh, one, you, I guess three. One, you have to find a program to give you a chance, just like you have to find a business to give you a chance. So that's number one. Number two is it has to work. I mean, at, at my core, I'm a producer, so is he. I'm an operator at the core. I think one of the big misinterpretations people have about us is that our job is giving presentations, giving keynotes, talking. Um, And I mean, I I don't need anybody else to get it because a producer just goes out and produces and doesn't worry about anything else, neither do we. But for people who are listening and putting it together, this isn't about talking, it's about producing. Mm -hmm. It's not about delivering a good keynote. Keynote won't do anything. I mean, you actually have to go put your boots in the ground. That's why when we end our podcast, our podcast is always do the work. Because I just we just spend an hour educating. If all you do is listen to a podcast and a keynote, it's not going to make you any better. Read a book. I mean, our world right now is filled with people who read books and don't remember jack about what's actually in them.
2: Or worse, they remember it. They just don't do it.
3: So one is, is we had to get an opportunity. Two is it has to actually work. And then number three is it has to be any client, for that matter, but in athletics, obviously, it has to be somebody who is a, uh, a, a recognizable figure or space um, obviously it turns out ohio state and urban meyer are that space uh, not just in central ohio but all across america so one we got a shot
1: mm-hmm.
3: and it's funny it's actually a really funny story about the shot it it, it, it shows you and it's a story worth telling here one because it's funny but also it's, it's really functional we got a shot uh, number two it worked not right away it worked first year it didn't work First opportunity when all of our stuff, the leadership, the culture, the discipline needed to work, it didn't pass the test. And then number three is you know, you know, when it works and eyeballs are on and Urban Meyer, who's a tremendous coach before he ever met either one of us, uh, and Ohio State was a brand that ended up getting notoriety and so it was, it was right place, right time, but we were also ready. Mm-hmm. And the interesting part of the story is when, when TK met Urban Meyer, I was on vacation and he called me and said, hey, I met Urban Meyer last night and we actually kind of clicked and it worked out. I'm like, that's awesome. Um, sort of expecting most stories end right there. You know? And he said, no, no. He, he, he asked my number and he, he said he wants me to come down and watch one of his leadership sessions. And I said, well, that's awesome news. That's great. When are you going down? He's like, I'm going down today. It's the next day. So I'm like, can I cut my vacation short? I was in Hawaii. How quickly can I get back? I'm like, no, we're fine. So he goes down, watches a leadership session and, and takes a bunch of notes and urban says, I just want you to watch it. Give me feedback. So he debriefs back to me, what he saw in that particular leadership session. And we debriefed about what happened and you know, what we saw. And you know, if he asks us what our thoughts are, what do we think? Well, like, like he was talking about, it was just kind of probably right in the transition. It was right, probably right after I was CEO, That's right about, um, you know, in true form as father and son, I, I've been hammering him on our sales process for probably about a year, just hammering, because for most of his career, he sold the way he likes to sell, and it was really good, and it worked, but it was probably more, it was and I, it worked for me, but it was kind of tough to sell because we weren't structured, and so I had to say, hey, we've got to get more structured, got to get more structured, we've got to have conversations this way, you know, just you know typical sales stuff. So we're driving down to the Woody together for our first meeting with, Urban Meyer collective meeting. Yeah. First collective member urban Meyer, Mickey Marathi, David Trischel, who's actually here with us now. And, uh, we were going to go provide the feedback and then expecting to be ready for the conversation. So we're driving down and he says to me, he says, Hey, whenever it gets time to describe what it is that we do and move into that, if he asks you handle that, cause you've been very adamant on, you know, we have to follow a very specific you know, procedure with that. I said, yeah, no problem. And so we go in and, and here's how the meeting goes. We walk in, shake hands, introduce. We all sit down at Urban's office and Urban says, all right, this is uh, Tim Kite and, uh, and I had never met him yet. And he goes, I, I guess this is his son, Brian, who's in the company too. Met Tim, we had a great conversation. Tim watched our leadership session, said he had some feedback for us and this is what they do for a living. So I figured we could pick some things up. And uh, yeah, guys, it's like the most important thing in our program, our pro- whole program revolves around it. He says, so uh, so show us what you got. And he leans back in his chair, folds his arm, and kind of puts his feet up. And my dad, in all of his wisdom, says, right, right, sure. Bri, why don't you go ahead? And just <laughs> <laughs> Now, the back to that, the back to that is. Thank you, Dad. Appreciate yeah. that. Good
2: opportunity. So, so Urban and I had already had two in-depth conversations. So I'd, if he messed up, I'd already covered for him, right? But no, it was, it was a really interesting moment because of, uh, just everything that Brian is saying, but it, he, what Brian wrote on the whiteboard in Urban's office that day about who we are and what we do is still there. It's not been erased. Here's the thing, and I think this is an important message for people. In some regards, Division One high-level football coaches are a great test for how good a consulting or a training firm is, and here's why. They, they don't mess around with stuff. They get pinged all the time with buy this and do that and buy this and do that and buy this and do that. I did not pursue Urban Meyer. I did not pursue Ohio State. I met him at a fundraiser. I didn't say, hey, Coach Meyer, I'm Tim Kite. I own a leadership development company. Can I help you guys? That's not how it happened. We met at a fundraiser. It was purely serendipitous. No one even introduced us. He literally walked by me at his house at the fundraiser, looked in the corner of his eye turned back and looked at me and said, you look familiar, have we met before? It was that serendipitous, unplanned. And then he
3: asked his name, he said, what's your name? He said,
2: I'm Tim Kite. He said, who are you? That's
0: what he said.
2: <laughs> and, then, and then here's the point, and I think it's part of what, what Bryce said, what you do had better resonate with that coach really fast because they have the attention span of a hummingbird. And then, and then you'd better deliver on what you said. Mm-hmm. So his first impression is, hey, I think this would work. And then his, and we, we got tested. So we were actually in, I think a couple days later, we were sitting down in Mickey Muratti's office. It was Brian, me, David, and Mick, Coach Mick, just talking about some potential ways to approach this. And Urban sort of, quote unquote, drops in. In my opinion, that was fairly planned. Then he said, Hey, what are you guys doing right now? I'm getting, putting my coaches together. Would you mind presenting this to my coaches right now? No advance notice. And I have a sneaking suspicion that was a little bit of a test, a little beta test so I said sure so we walked in and I got to deliver you know with with no with no uh, um, a preparation advance notice and deliver to the coaches and then that was a test how, how did they feel about it? what do they think so I, I think it's really important at least for as far as those types of, of decision makers are concerned you would better be real precise you better be clear it better be you better get your message to them really fast and it better work right away and and so I, and I think that's slowly but surely than what's happened in athletics is because urban embraced it and then it got communicated various ways to other coaches college and high school and now some some pros and now way outside of football i think other coaches recognize hey that stuff really works
3: and you asked i mean you asked what happened it was that's why i think that story is so interesting not just because of the humor but we had look everything is training for something the hard part is you don't know what you're training for had we met four years earlier, I doubt we would have I doubt we would have gotten to work with Ohio State Durban Meyer, not because he wasn't there, but in whatever just as I don't think we would have been in a position or we would have been ready just yet. So he everything have we I would have had, been, but he wouldn't have been. Everything <laughs> we had done up until that point put us in a position where in that moment you're either good enough or you're not.
2: True.
3: And that's just it. You're either good enough or you're not. And two years earlier, I don't know three years earlier, four years earlier, obviously 10 years plus earlier, obviously not good enough. Then no doubt in my mind, I didn't I didn't not get hired by coaches when I first started out because I was good enough and all the coaches were dumb. No, that's not the case. I wasn't good enough to position ROI, convince, sell, build a relationship. I, I just wasn't good enough at the time. It, I mean, it only took me 10 years to get good enough to be in a position to be able to do that. So when that moment arrives, it's too late to train. It's too late to implement discipline. It's too late to build your mindset. And then I go back to the question that you asked about, it's got to be hard to position the ROI. Well, it's not fundamentally different than athletics. What's the ROI of squatting? <laughs> a lot of you pain a lot more. Day. <laughs> what's, what's the ROI of stretching? What's the, R, what's the, what's the ROI of uh, not eating sugar in your life? The answer is, I mean, we could talk about the stuff that we think would happen. We could talk about the opportunity that it gives you. But you don't ever, no football team walks in there and goes, hey, prove to me the ROI of, of squatting. Show me the guys that squat the most, and then they turn into an all-conference or all-pro performer. I wanna be guaranteed and proven before I start. You better show me the exact yards I'll get or the exact number of matches I'll win if I come out and do uh, uh, 15 more minutes each day on this, on this uh, uh, wind bike, arm bike. Show me the ROI of doing that. Nobody asked that question. You know, but in our but, business, what's the ROI of leadership training? What's the ROI of mindset training? I don't know. Don't do any of it. Watch what happens. Watch what happens when you don't do any of it. Just like a football player walks out. Don't squat. Don't lift. Don't train. Don't run. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it, a it, great point.
2: Let, let me go more subtle than that, though, because every athlete squats, right? I mean, every wrestler squats. And so it's not just who. what's the ROI of it, but... It's also how you do it and the mindset you bring to it. How many companies do they do leadership development? All, all of them, to some extent. The question is, how effectively do you do it? How well do you do it? So who, who, who practices in athletics today? All of well, them. We'll,
3: st- we'll still get pushback, though. We'll still, to this day, we're in 2017 when we're recording this, and I don't expect this to change much. We'll still get, we still get pushback all the time from companies and teams and schools on how much training we do, and it's rarely close when we get that pushback to a lot of training. It's, ra- it's rarely close. Agreed, yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about, well, we have one client right now who we're talking to, trying to get training, and they're saying, well, we're saying, hey, get everybody in a room for half of a day. Eh, can't afford it. Not money-wise, not money-wise. Can't afford to get in the room to actually get trained to build skills that people are already pretty hit and miss on. I mean, it's literally the equivalent of saying, hey, I need you to get in and you need to squat. Ugh, can't afford it. Can't afford to squat. Got to read my playbook more. No, you, you can't afford not to. And we, we still we still encounter that all the time in business and in school. I want to be proven if we're going to put more our teachers in a room or our employees in a room, I want it to be proven that what they're going to get out of that really, really works before we start. And there is no guarantee, just like there's no guarantee if you squat more and you bench press more, and you cut down your body weight, and you put on mass, and you're faster, that you're going to be a better football player, baseball player, wrestler, whatever your particular sport is. But what I can guarantee you is if you don't do that work, the people who do are going to start having bigger and bigger bigger advantages of you, and you're basically betting on your innate talent, and good luck. And then
2: I'm talking about competing against those who are doing the work, then you have to do the work better than they do Yes, you do.
1: Yeah. And then for you guys is establishing that initial relationship, getting them to take the chance with you, and then proving the way that it turns out? Because you've established the fear, quote unquote, that might be a, a too negative of a term, but the, the fear that if they don't improve and they don't have leadership training, and then you've established that you can deliver it and now it's just up to them to take the chance. Is that kind of how the, the process works for you guys? Well, there's the, no,
3: I just, there, there's, um, as, as CEO of our company, and I pulled this from him, and I, I probably take a harder line on this from him, but I, it, you know, it's just not gonna be a question for me anymore. Um, there is no proving that we have left to do. Well,
1: not I don't, not now, I, but I was just wondering. And, like, and I don't know. mean,
3: but no, but that's a good question because people come in with that mindset. Like they, mm-hmm. that's even to something, oh, how do you prove that what you work to? Here's the thing, we don't prove what we do to anybody. We already know it works. We already know that's how, how it actually gets applied. Most people don't have one of these tools in place. Most companies don't have these tools in place. Uh, now, if we're competing between us and somebody who does what we do, okay, we'll go compete. But your question is really good. coming in and improving. I don't. The the people who want to hire us, they're the ones who have to prove to us yeah. that they want to do that work. We've actually it's re- already guaranteed. Yeah,
2: we, this is an interesting place to be. We're at a spot now where we're kind of vetting the clients. If you don't want to do what we, if you don't like, if this doesn't resonate with you. See ya. Yeah, you're not a candidate. And Urban's different. And I, and and I'll, this is what really is unique about him. There was no proving anything to Urban. As soon as he saw it, he knew he wanted it immediately. He knew it. There was no proving it to him. Because he already believed in leadership. He already believed in culture. He believed in, in, in competitive behavior. He just never had a system for implementing it. What we brought to him wasn't... Leader, we didn't bring leadership development to him. He already did that. We didn't bring culture to him. He already did it. We didn't bring competitive behavior to him. He already did it. We just brought a systematic way of doing it to him. So... There was no, proof to me the ROI, that never crossed his mind, ever. The moment, in fact, when he heard it from me at the party, he knew he wanted it. His intuition said, I'll bet you this is something special. Then we met, and he goes, yeah, I think it is. And then when BK and I went down and talked with him, he literally said, let's go, let's start right now. And there was zero hesitation. And then what happened is, because of that platform, other coaches who think like him had the same response. So there wasn't any of this, um, taking a chance and they real fear. They're none. No, it's like, no, you want to do it or you don't. If you don't want to do it, fine. Great. We got lots of you who want to do it. So that's good. And we've really gotten to this spot now where that's kind of where we're at right now. And I, we don't want to waste our time with some corporate leadership guy or some football coach or some athletic director who, yeah, I don't know. Well, if you don't know, you're not a candidate for what we do.
3: And we're not, I mean, there's no, there's no upset. There's no judgment of any of that. It's just, it's just, we're not in the business of proving our tools. I don't need to, any more than I need to prove a hammer. Or what, what kind of phone do you have, Mike? Uh, an
0: iPhone. What kind of phone do you have? iPhone.
3: What's the ROI of your iPhone? <laughs> <It's,
0: gotta
1: laughs> it be, works, gotta man. be negative I at mean, this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good question,
3: actually. But I mean, like, look, I mean, do you need to prove the ROI of an iPhone beforehand, or do you need to be shown a tool, look at its capacity, and say, if I integrated that into my life, I'm gonna be able to do a lot of things that I might not otherwise be able to do. Well, that's Uber, an Uber interesting- and iPhone, all that. Yeah. So, I, I'm not in the business of proving anymore. I, we have a tool. The tool works. The tool can be used for whatever you want to use it for. You can apply E plus R equals O to be a better mom, or you can apply it to be a super intense national championship football coach. You can apply E plus, this is the big thing about discipline. You ever struggle, Josh, you ever struggle uh, to disconnect from work when you go home? You ever, ever struggle to step away, either one of you guys?
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I think I do. You're laughing, Mike. You're laughing. I, <laughs> You're laughing. I, I, I do to an extent because like I, I can take I could take it to an extreme and I can allocate a certain amount of time in my day. I'm very structured mentally where yeah. I can release, but if it's not during that time, I can't release. You Plus, less for
0: you? Well, let me. I'm I'm laughing because when you said, "Do you have trouble separating work from home life?" Josh just doesn't do it. So there's no trouble because he just works yeah. till 10 o'clock, goes to sleep, wakes up, and continues to work. Sure. So it's you know it's interesting, but he does. When he, but he is very good at when he does decide to take a break or relax, that he's very good at completely forgetting about his work. Which so,
3: yeah, so here, here's, the, here's the other side of that, the, the extended application of E plus R equals O, which is obviously a, a, a tool we're, we're pretty famous for now at this point, and discipline. What does it take to turn your phone off, not check it at work, or not check it when you're at home, and just enjoy your night and have whatever personal you time and not do it. What's that? What's that require? Discipline. (laughs) So it it takes discipline to relax. It takes discipline to be spontaneous. It takes discipline to enjoy yourself and not bring the stress and strain of the work life uh, or the work environment to an environment that that's not appropriate for. So I'm agnostic as to what you want to apply discipline to. I want you to build a life. A business a company a team that fits who you are what you want to be with the one chance that you get for whatever motivation you're that's driving you he and I don't have the same motivations our motivations overlap but they're not the same because we're two different human beings as they ought to be and I'm his son and he's my dad we don't see the world the exact same because he sees it through the lens of a dad working with his son I don't work with my son I work with my dad so I have a different view And so I would expect us to have overlap, but I would expect differences. And I want him to be able to live his discipline. I want me to be able to live my discipline. And then inside of our company and the way we live our lives, I wanna make sure that we're aligned, but that doesn't mean we have to be the same. So when we put our tool in companies and people's hands, one of the primary drivers is I want to make sure that what our company does is it helps people build the discipline they need to get the things that they want. What that is, 100% 100% on you, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, it's not my job to guide your life. My job is to put tools in your hands that help you build the things you need to go after and get the life or the business or the, the goals that you want. That's what we do.
1: Yeah, it makes plenty of sense. And as we start to wrap things up, I think it's a good place to kind of hit you guys with our final question. The theme of our show is live uncomfortably. And we find that it means different things to different people, but um, most people who have achieved high levels of success in their life, it resonates with them internally. So interested for both you guys what it means to you and how it relates back to your life and your path to where you are today
2: I'm a big believer in embracing productive discomfort It's a, a theme that, that I've taught and we teach in the company um, I've taught it for 35 years and to your point if you want to achieve any significance in your life you're gonna to have to come to what we call the edge which is where your current level of skill stops or begins to, to wane and to build new skill or to take that skill to, n- to another level it's going to be uncomfortable and that's just been something that that i've done my whole life long track and field's uncomfortable building a new business is uncomfortable and navigating through all these things you got to go through in life and dealing with adversity and dealing with difficulties and that is just it's uncomfortable uh, traveling as much as we do is uncomfortable and i've traveled for 35 years now i've got to say that there are things though that if you apply these kinds of skills the the uncomfortable becomes a habit and the uncomfortable you you can get comfortable with it so you build rhythms and cadence so while travel today still is i can't say that i thoroughly enjoy it it doesn't bother me at all it's part of the business it's part of my cadence it's part of the rhythm Uh, when when flights are canceled things go wrong it happens and i just i don't flinch anymore because i apply these tools but, but the entire journey is one of constantly embracing productive discomfort. It really is. And, and you know I could point to many things in my life where I reached to an edge and said, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm not good enough. He said it. I'm not good enough at that. And then you'd better get good at it. You'd better do the work and get good. He has a phrase he uses all the time, doesn't matter, get better. And that's uncomfortable to do. And what most people want to do, we've got a saying, BCD, which stands for blame, complain, defend, when things get difficult and you're not good enough it's real easy to blame and complain and to defend your ego and we're a big believer in no bcd if you're trying to do something and and you're not getting it done then get better do the work and get better and i believe in that deeply and i've never ever seen a consistently successful person in athletics education or business who
3: didn't embrace productive discomfort as a part of their journey yeah, I mean, I mean that, that doesn't matter, get better. The root of that is the, the foundation of life is that if there's something in your life that you want that you're not getting, the answer is because you're not good enough. And that can be an uncomfortable truth to hear and it can be an uncomfortable truth to deliver to some people because people want to have a reason why they're not getting it to be something outside themselves. But the value of E plus R equals O is your R, your response, it has to be good enough to produce the outcome, not in a neutral setting, but it actually has to be good enough to produce the outcome you want for the circumstances you're in. So the kid who's born into a family who doesn't have much money in a rough part of town is more asked of him in his response to go after and get what he wants, sure is. But I also hear other people talking about kids born on the nice part of town who have lots of money Their R's are harder for a different reason with the entitlement and the money and all the things they get given to them and they get soft and all that stuff. So I'm less concerned with both of those things. If there's something you want that you're not getting, embrace however uncomfortable it is for you to the point where it's not uncomfortable anymore that there's just a cause and effect. If you're good enough, you get it. If you're not, you don't. The answer to everything is always doesn't matter, get better. And one of the ways to inoculate yourself against that is do something specifically uncomfortable for you every single day physically emotionally and intellectually or, or mentally if you do something physical that's uncomfortable you start to learn you tk mentioned flinch you, you stop flinching at physical discomfort i, mean, I, took, I literally I took an ice cold shower this morning and it's funny somebody described to me on that on, on you guys wrap up here but somebody described one time it's actually a really interesting test go to your shower Turn the water to cold, feel it with your hand, feel that cold first so you actually know, and then stand in that shower and make a decision to get in. If you do that and do it for a whole week, here's what will happen. The first day or the second day, whatever it happens to be, you're gonna try to convince yourself not to do it. You'll try, it's just what you know, You'll be like, don't do this, that guy on the podcast said that, like there's no reason to do that, That's just that's just a thing he said, he's one of those consultants. Or you'll say, Oh, I'm tough enough to do this, I don't, I don't have to prove this to myself. What's really important to pay attention to and that is this, whatever arguments that you use to try to convince yourself not to do that uncomfortable thing, which is getting in the shower, pay attention to those arguments because those are the exact same arguments that your brain and your emotions are going to use to convince you not to do other uncomfortable things in your life. You can actually field test how you attack yourself and undermine yourself in uncomfortable things. That's why the physical side, I think the physical side of discomfort is so important uh, in addition to the, the mental and emotional. Try things you can't do. Go look foolish in front of somebody else. Go publicly try to do something where you have no idea whether or not you're gonna be good enough or whether or not it's gonna work. You Don't know, make your downside risk You know yeah. where you're risking everything. Don't go bet all your money on, on a game or something like that, but do things every single day that put you into serious and relevant discomfort for your environment and watch what happens. And here's watch what happens if you do that for a year. It's not that long.
2: We're, we're wrapping. I just, but I want. I got to make this point. We're re- real big on take action to get better. Stop with the constant. There's too many books, too many, too much stuff out there, there too many theories. So go do. That's his point. Go do. Go do. There's just there's no end in the end with social media and, and and the digital world. We're gonna get even more stuff. So we're interested in what are you going to do and I think it's a great point he makes right there
3: or you could read another blog
2: or listen to another podcast
3: we say, say it on our <laughs> podcast yeah. like what are you going to listen to one more podcast and that's going to be it that's the one
1: mm-hmm.
3: no I mean listen to inform yourself to go do something yeah, but do if it. not turn the podcast off yeah. go do something else yeah. including ours right. which I encourage that you listen to and then go do something
0: <laughs> alright well Brian Tim hey we really appreciate you guys joining us on the show today and that uh, Join us here. It is a little late, so again, appreciate it. I'm sure you guys had a long day before this. So, Good to be here. Thanks yeah. for having thanks us.
3: Thanks for having us in. Appreciate being and on the podcast with you guys.
0: Thank you. And hey, Conquerors, thanks for listening. I uh, hope you guys cut a lot out of that. Uh, get out there. Go do something after this. This is Conqueror in Columbus. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to
1: sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and, easy and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head
0: kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done.
2: to not just be status quo a desire to not be average this is conquering columbus